Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. The final paragraph uh, of this book. We've made it to the end. After uh, the better part of two years, uh, we finally come to the conclusion of this great book. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. But before we hear the reading of God's word, uh, let us pray and ask for his blessing. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you this morning, humbly asking uh, that you would be with us uh, this morning by your Spirit, through your word, to enliven our hearts and to conform our wills to uh, the image of the glory of Christ. Father God, bring forth in us an abundant fruit of righteousness uh, to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. These are unusual verses in many ways. They, they are unusual because they are not really part of the letter proper. The, the letter proper ended with the benediction in the previous paragraph, and these verses are a sort of postscript added on to the end of the book of Hebrews. We actually see such postscripts in several New Testament books. The documents which comprise the New Testament were for the most part written down by professional scribes, who, people whose, whose job it was to make legible and, and well-formatted documents. Whether it was Matthew or Paul or Luke or whoever, whoever the author happened to be, they wouldn't write the words down themselves, but rather they would dictate the words to someone who was trained to write well. In a sense, these professional scribes were the Microsoft Word of their day. Microsoft Word allows me to produce legible documents. And if you've ever seen me write in Sunday school, you know how important Microsoft Word is. Well, well in the same way, professional scribes allowed the authors of the New Testament to produce documents that could be easily read and easily copied for the churches. But at the end of such documents... We often find a, a personal note written in the author's own hand. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that, that he adds such a personal note to all of his letters. It was, it was this personal note at the end that in many ways allowed the churches to recognize that this was truly a letter from Paul and not someone claiming Paul's authority. And it seems that we have just such a postscript here at the end of Hebrews. We, we don't know for certain, of course, we don't have the original copies, but we can imagine uh, that this is a, a personal note written in the author's own hand at the end of the letter. Now, it might seem that such a postscript would be of little value to the church today. Might we, we might even just skip over it in our sermon series through the books, and I know some do uh, fail to treat these verses 
But I want to suggest to you that these verses are not insignificant. These these verses are still part of the the written Word of God. They are not part of the larger argument of the book. They they don't contain a a, a significant premise, or they don't set forth a, a conclusion. And yet, they serve the author's pastoral purpose. This is the the author's pastoral heart for his people being expressed under the influence, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And because these words are the very words of God, we can know that these words are for us. There is something of good, something of value for the church today. And to help us try to see what that is, I want to work my way through these verses, really dividing them into four parts, simply the four verses that we have in front of us. First, we have the author's appeal in verse 22. Then we have his report in verse 23. We have his greetings in verse 24. And finally, we have his benediction in verse 25. And I want to suggest to you that if we work our way through these, God will speak to us and edify us and equip us for his service. So let's, let's begin with the author's appeal there in verse 22. Notice what he writes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, the, the word of exhortation that he is talking about, obviously, is the letter as a whole. He, he is saying, bear with this letter that I have sent to you. And he, and he refers to it. He refers to this letter, this, this book, as a word of exhortation. Now, now, let's think about the significance of that. What is an exhortation? An exhortation is a, is a command or an appeal, a strong encouragement to do something. It is a call to action. The author is, is asking, even commanding, the Hebrews to do something. And therefore, a response is required what we need to see. When when someone gives us an exhortation, a response is required because a non-response is a response. It's it's a response in the the negative. It is a a decision not to do what you are being asked to do. A, A book that is an exhortation cannot simply be received as information. When the churches of this presbytery meet together, We sometimes receive reports from our various committees, and we we receive those reports merely as information. It's It's just a report about what people are doing. But there are other times when those committees overture the presbytery. They they ask the presbytery to do something. And such overtures require a response, because if we just receive it as information, we are in effect answering in the negative. We are saying, no, we're not going to do that. Some sort of response is required when we are overtured to act. Some sort of response is required when we are exhorted to do something. And that is what we need to see. It's the first thing we need to see in this text, that the author of Hebrews assumes that this letter that he has written to the church requires a response. So what is the response that is required? Well, our catechism tells us that the the scriptures, the the word of God, they they teach us two things. They teach us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. When I I teach this to little kids, I I focus on two words, what we are to believe and what we are to do. It's what we often refer to as faith and practice. 
This is, what the, this is what the scriptures teach. This is what the book of Hebrews teaches. It, it teaches us what is true and what we are to believe. And it teaches us how we are to live in response to that truth. And this is always the response that scripture requires. It requires us to believe what is affirmed and to do what is Commanded. It is, a, it is a transformation of mind and heart, of mind and, and life. It is the renewing that Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 12 as we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we, as we have our minds renewed to believe the truth, our lives are transformed to come, become more and more in accord with God's good, perfect, and pleasing will. And that is what the book of Hebrews is. It is an exhortation to receive the truth and live in accord with it. Now, obviously, I don't have time this morning to, to review everything the author has set before us as truth. But if you can remember back over the course of this letter, I, I think we can agree that the, the main point that the author has been hammering home from the beginning, the, the point that he has hammered again and again and again from various angles and from various perspectives, is the truth that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and that He has come in human flesh as the Messiah King to give His life as the ransom price for His people that they might be set free from their sins and live to the praise of the glory of their heavenly Father. That's the, the sum message. That's, that's what he's been getting at again and again and again. And it is that message that the author is saying that we must respond to, that we must receive, that we must even bear with, he says. Bear with this word of exhortation. And notice that word. What, what does it mean to, to bear something? When we think about bearing something, we, we think about carrying it. It's not, it's not something that you just pick up, examine, and then set back down. You're not, you're not bearing an object if you, if you examine it briefly and then put it back down. To bear with something is to, to carry it with you. It is to, to take it with you as you, you go. You, you bear a burden as you carry it with you on your journey. And so the author is exhorting the Hebrews to bear with this word of exhortation. Don't just hear it once, but meditate upon it. Mull it over. Make it, make it part of, uh, of your day. Bear with it. Carry it with you as you go. Receiving God's word, receiving the exhortation of God's word is not something we do once and then move on. God's word must be bared. Blessed is the man who meditates upon it day and night, the scriptures say. It is, it is an exhortation that we bear, but, but bearing doesn't only mean carrying. We normally associate the language of bearing with carrying something that's a burden, carrying something that is heavy, carrying something that is not easy. And again, I think that's exactly what the author intends for us to hear. He is, he is asking the Hebrews to bear with this exhortation. Not only to, to carry it with them, but to carry it with them knowing it's going to be hard. In fact, 
That's the reason he's writing the letter in the first place. The, the Hebrews have discovered that it's hard. They have discovered that it's, that it's hard to bear these things. They have discovered that it's hard to, to live in accord with, with Jesus' lordship over all of life. They have discovered that that's led them into all sorts of troubles and trials and tribulations, and they're beginning to wonder whether it is worth it, and he is exhorting them to bear with this truth. Bear with the truth of Christ's lordship, even though it's going to cost you. And we need to hear the same thing this morning. We need to recognize that this word of exhortation that comes to us in the book of Hebrews, the, the same as the, the word of exhortation that comes to us in all of Scripture, this, this exhortation that requires a response. It is something that we don't respond to once, but with something that we respond to over the course of our life, and that it's going to be hard to consistently respond to it over the course of his life. It's going to be costly. It's going to be tiring. It's not going to be easy. Following Christ, Jesus himself describes as a, as a narrow and difficult path. It is not easy. And so we need to, to hear this encouragement to bear with it. Now, as we go through this, we'll see that he's actually going to give us encouragements to, to help us as we face this difficult challenge. But if, if the challenge isn't hard enough just with the word bear, he makes it even a little harder with the word brief. So before we get to the encouragements, hear that little word, brief. I, I doubt any of you thought, well, this was really a brief letter. It would take about an hour to, to read through the book of Hebrews out loud. So if you were reading this to a church in the first century, it would take about an hour. I don't, I don't think that would qualify as brief by modern standards, but I don't think it would qualify as brief by first century standards either. There are plenty of letters in the New Testament that are much shorter than the book of Hebrews. What then does the author mean when he refers to this as his brief word of exhortation? Well, I think, again, he is simply reminding the Hebrews that, that these are the elementary things. These are the basics. This is not everything you need. This is not everything you're going to need for your whole life. He, he says that back in, in chapter 6. He says there are other things that, that eventually we're going to want to move on to. Now, don't think that once you've got this, this is, this is it. As Christians, we are always learning. We are, we are always growing. We are always digging deeper. We are always exploring further. We, we are attempting to, to comprehend the incomprehensible. We will never complete that task. And so this is a brief word of exhortation. It is, it is one word that we need to hear, but not the only word that we need to hear. We need the whole counsel of God. And this is why it is important for us to, to, to feast upon all of God's Word in, in many and various ways. Whether it's, it's reading it for yourself, whether it's listening to it, it preached here on Sunday morning, or, or listening to the, the great blessing that we have in this modern age of, of listening to other good ministers of the Word. Preach the Word. Feed your mind. This is a, a brief word. This is one word among many that we need to hear. And the author is, is reminding them of that. That you need, to, you need to pursue God's Word. You need to crave it the way a, a baby craves its mother's milk. For it is the pure spiritual milk by which you will grow up in your salvation. Because this is just but a brief word. And so the first thing that we, we see here is that the Word of God contained here in this letter to the Hebrews, but, but contained in all of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It is a word of exhortation requiring a response. 
A word that we must take with us, even though it's heavy. And a word which we must explore fully, never assuming that we have comprehended the whole. But notice what he says next. Having exhorted them, having appealed to them to to receive his exhortation, he then immediately mentions Timothy. It's almost like a a missions report. It's like like receiving a a brief letter from a a missionary. It's just a, a, a quick update about Timothy. And this may be the same Timothy that accompanied Paul. It may be another Timothy. There's no really any way for us to know. Timothy uh, in the Bible is not the only person with that name, so, so we don't actually know who this was. But it's, it's clearly someone who is a co-laborer with the author, someone who he expects that he might even join him on his next trip back to the church. But notice what he says about him. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. And the first thing I want you to notice about that is if you have been released, what does it mean? It means previously you were imprisoned. And so the first thing that we see in this little missions report is just a subtle reminder of the dangers inherent in what the author is asking the Hebrews to do. The author is asking the Hebrews to to bear with his word of exhortation, to, to live like Jesus is king to acknowledge him as Lord, and then to live that out in the course of their life. As as Paul says in in Colossians, you've received him as Lord, now walk in him. That's what the author is is asking the the Hebrews to, to do. And yet, he immediately reminds them that if you do this, you might end up in jail like your brother Timothy. He's actually acknowledged this openly before. He, he said, listen, you've already had your property plundered. You've already had, some of you have already been thrown in prison. You've already been slandered. You haven't yet shed blood, but that's on the horizon. It might be coming. He's he reminding them of the, the costs that come with following Jesus. He's, he's not trying to hide it in, in any way. Throughout church history, beginning in the first century, those who have followed Christ have lost much. They have lost their reputations. They have lost relationships with with family as they have been disowned. They have lost their stuff as it has been plundered by either the the mobs or by the authorities. They have often lost their freedom as they were thrown into prison. And many have even lost their lives. And the author doesn't want to hide this reality. Reality. He doesn't want the Hebrews to to believe that that if they will just follow Christ, all their troubles will go away. I think there are many today who come to Christ because they are looking for a power that will help them to achieve the life they've always wanted. They, They are looking for someone with more power than they have to give them the life that they have dreamed of. But let me tell you that if you are attempting to use Jesus to make your life better, if you're using him as that power source that will will get you over the hump and get you the life that you want, then you will be sorely disappointed. Jesus will not be used. When we receive Jesus, we lay our life at his feet. We offer ourselves to be used by him. We renounce our rights. We renounce our dreams. We we renounce our own will. We acknowledge Him as our Lord and Master. 
To use Paul's language from Romans chapter 12, we offer our bodies to him as living sacrifices. And that might mean, like Timothy, we end up imprisoned. Maybe not literally here in the United States. That's not an imminent threat for us. But if you follow Christ, you will face costs. You will face dangers. You will face difficulties. It is not easy to follow after a crucified Savior. And we need to know that going in. I'm not saying that following Jesus won't make your life better. The one who loses his life will find it. That is the, the promise. But if you come to him seeking to use him to gain the life you've always wanted, you are promised disappointment. You will lose your life following him, and in losing it, you will find it. But the losing has to come first. But of course, that's not the only thing that we see in this, because he doesn't just tell us that Timothy is imprisoned. What does he tell us? He tells us that, that Timothy has been released. We, we see in this not only the dangers of following after Jesus, but we, we see the deliverance that he can bring. It is a profound reminder of God's almighty power. Why is it safe to lay down your life to follow Jesus? It is safe because he is the almighty God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus is the eternal Son of the Almighty Father who together rule and overrule all of creation. The One who works all things according to the counsel of His will. When He wants His people out of prison, He sets them free. We see this throughout the book of Acts, the book we're going to begin studying next week. Throughout the, the book of Acts, God's servants are, are thrown into prison and they are routinely delivered. Peter is, is delivered by an angel. Paul is set free from his bonds by an earthquake. God works in miraculous ways to accomplish his purposes. If, if you follow Jesus, you are not at risk. You are at risk to what the world can do to you. But God rules and overrules all that the world can do for his good purposes. He is the one who is ultimately sovereign. He is the one who is ultimately in control. And therefore, like Timothy, who is now about to be released and seems like he's eager to rejoin the fight, you can accept what God brings into your life and continue to lay it down at his feet, saying, use me as you will. Because he is the almighty God who will use his servants and will use all of their troubles to the praise of his own glory and the establishment of his own kingdom. And so we can confidently receive this word of exhortation. We can confidently accept the, the difficulty of, of bearing it in this world with all the dangers that entails. Because we serve the Almighty God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. But as we go on, we see that, that God's almighty power has provided His people with a, with a number of resources. And these are highlighted for us in the last two verses. 
The third thing we, we see here is the author's personal greeting. He, he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who, who come from Italy send you greetings. Again, it's, it's just a personal note. But there's, there are words of, of significance here. Notice first that little word, all. All of your leaders and all of the saints. Why does the author pause to, to, to insert that word? Why, why, does he, why does he reference in regreeting all of the saints and all of the leaders? Of course, we can't know for certain, but it, it suggests to us at least the possibility that there were factions in this congregation, or at least the, the seeds of, of factions. We know there were factions in other New Testament churches. Paul says as much in, in 1 Corinthians, writing, one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. He, he's referring to these groups that had risen up within the church, and he, he responds to them asking, is Christ divided? He, he appeals to them to agree in the Lord, because in the Lord they are one people. And that little word all reminds us of that. Greet all, not just your circle, not just your tribe. Greet all of the saints. Whatever divisions have, have, aro- have arisen amongst you because of, of your sinful flesh, put them down. Stamp them out. Remember the unity that is yours in Christ because Christ is one and He has one body. And therefore, we must protect the unity that is ours in Christ. We must, we must practice the unity that is ours in Christ. We must not let divisions take hold. It doesn't mean that we cannot speak the truth to one another. It doesn't mean that we cannot correct one another, even sometimes rebuke one another. But we do it in love. We do it with, with the, uh, the pursuit of the oneness that is ours in Christ. And when the differences are good, we celebrate them. Again, think of, of Paul's words later in the book of Corinthians as, as he reminds them that, listen, God has distributed his gifts according to his will. Celebrate the differences. It's a, not everyone is a nose, not everyone is an eye, not everyone is a hand, and that is a good thing. Use the gifts that you have been given to help everyone in the body grow. Whatever part you've been given to play, you've been given to play that part not only for yourself, but for the good of the whole. If we're going to do this thing, if we're going to receive this exhortation, if we're going to live it out, we have to do it in community. And if we're going to do it in community, we need everyone to be together. This is also reinforced by that reference to those who are from Italy. Again, the the language is a bit ambiguous. Is this the people who are presently in Italy sending greetings? Is this the people who were from Italy but no longer there sending greetings back? We don't really know, and it doesn't really matter, but it is this reminder that the church is bigger than this one congregation of the Hebrews. The church is spreading all over the known world at that time. Churches are being planted everywhere, and they are all one church. Those in Italy share a common bond with these Hebrews. The church in Ephesus shares a common bond with those who are in Rome, who shares a common bond with those who are in Ephesus. There is one church, one Catholic church. We we sometimes get scared by that word, but it simply means universal, that, that all over the whole globe there is one church. And we all need one another. We need to to help one another. We need to to speak to one another in love. We need to build one another up. 
Because it is only in community, as we celebrate the unity that is ours in Christ, that we will be fully equipped to receive the exhortation that has been given to us. And to help us in that process of of listening to one another and 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 of seeking unity. Notice what he says, God has given leaders. This is actually the third time that he has mentioned leaders in this, in this concluding section of the letter. But again, he, he mentions leaders, and he says to greet all the leaders, not just the leaders you like, but to greet all the leaders who God has given to his church. God has given elders as a gift to his church, and they are there to be the shepherds, to be those who, who, who know and, and feed and lead and protect the flock as they seek to to grow in maturity, as they seek to to move towards conformity to the image of Christ. And all the leaders must work together. There's no one leader who has all the answers. There's no one leader whom, whom we can follow, but it is all the leaders together, as God has given, working together, who lead the church towards maturity. And so we need to learn to acknowledge those leaders. We need to let them lead. We need to receive them as a gift from God. And in the modern church, especially in the United States, it is, it is often assumed that a, that a Christian with his Bible has everything he really needs. He doesn't really need the church. But that is one of Satan's lies. God has called us into community and has given leaders to that community. And it is in community, under the direction of our leaders, that we move towards the goal of Christ-like maturity. But again, we don't do this in our own strength. That's the last thing that we see here in this brief postscript. Notice how he ends. Again, he ends with a benediction. Now, we spent all of the last couple of weeks talking about the wonder of what it is to be blessed by the God of peace. It is, it is a, a profound thing to have the blessing of the, of the God of peace. But, but notice again the sum and substance of that blessing. He says, grace be with all of you. God's grace. His grace is given to us that we might receive this exhortation. Without this concluding benediction, without the, the hope of, of grace, The burden of his exhortation would actually crush us. It would be too much for us to bear. But we do not bear it in our own strength. God's grace in the person of the Holy Spirit is with us. And and notice the the grace that he is talking about here is is what John Piper calls future grace. Yes, it was by grace that we have been saved. Yes, it was by grace that we were made alive when we we were dead. But that is not the only grace that we receive in Jesus Christ. We don't just thank God for the past grace that we have received and now try to to live a life of of thankful gratitude to Him. But think about what Paul says in in Romans chapter 5. He says, having been justified by faith, that's grace, having been justified by faith, having been made righteous in Christ in the past, past completed action, justified, no condemnation, because that has occurred, what does he say? Because we have been justified by faith, we now stand in grace. We live there. 
We we didn't just receive grace in the past. We now live in grace. We receive grace. His, His mercies are new every morning. The grace that we need to live today in conformity to the image of the glory of our Savior is ours in Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a word of exhortation. Yes, it's a a word that requires a response. And it's a response that is hard. It is a response that will bring us into danger. It is a response that will cost us something. And it is a response we cannot make on our own. But it's a response we were never asked to make on our own. Christ came to set us free. And he poured out his Holy Spirit that we might Live in that freedom. And so the final postscript of this letter is receive these truths and live in them. Yes, it will cost you. But as you serve the living God who works all things according to the counsel of will, He will strengthen you that you might do His good, perfect, and pleasing will. And in His service, you will find your joy. You will find your life and life abundant. And because he calls us into his service and equips us to serve, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your calling. And we thank you that they always go together. Father, when you call us, you equip us. And when you equip us, you give us something to do. Father God, may we receive this word and may we live it out in the course of our daily lives to the praise of your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.